Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Songs we love, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One's ready to make driving, fixing dinner, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR O-N-E on your app store. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lori Kilmartin is a stand-up comedian. She writes on Conan. She was on the road when she got the call that her dad was really, really sick. Things weren't looking good. She got on a plane. She took time off of work. She did everything that adult children are supposed to do in those situations. But even as his health got worse, she started to realize. Sometimes, even when you're staring death right in the eye, funny stuff can happen. We have this one piece of hospice video where my sister is sitting, my sister and I are sitting next to my dad, and she asked my dad, you know, what what do you want your grandchildren to know? You know, and my dad was sort of, you know, I I look at that video, I'm like, did he just realize then that he's dying? (laughs) It was very, it was very awkward. And yet, um, we wanted to hear what he had to say. And then he was a out to talk and it was hard for him to talk and then my mom just bursts into the frame and starts picking up like a candy wrapper that's on the ground in front of my dad on the carpet and she just ruins it it's bullseye coming up Lori kilmartin tells me about her new special it's called 45 jokes about my dead dad she says it helped her cope with grief even when it was kind of weird to be making jokes on stage about death. Which is weird because this audience that I did the special for was, you know, was like, hey, it's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad, and I wanted to warn everyone because I was tired of walkouts <laughs> and people getting angry or upset. But that's my goal is to be able to follow, you know, uh, genital material with cancer jokes. Like that's, <laughs> you know, they, they, they're in a way they're equal human experiences, right? Then later on in the show, I'll talk to Brian Safi and Aaron Gibson. The two of them together host the current events podcast, Throwing Shade. Just got turned into a totally legit real deal cable TV show. They'll tell me about how they managed to write comedy that bites but doesn't belittle. I do now believe that you can achieve what you want to achieve and be bold and funny and brash and ridiculous and still think before you speak. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive, and I don't think that thinking before you speak and political correctness is a comedy killer. I don't think that at all. Plus, I'll tell you about the classic Simpsons episode that tells you literally everything you need to know about Silicon Valley, with all due apologies to the great television show, Silicon Valley. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's almost like a Hallmark movie. Lori Kilmartin's dad died of lung cancer in 2014. He was 83 years old. When he got the diagnosis, Lori took time off from her job writing for Conan O'Brien and her other job as a road comic, and she flew up to the Bay Area where he lived to visit as often as she could. As a kind of way of dealing with all of the stress and the grief, she started tweeting about it, about all of it, sad moments, angry moments, funny moments. 
She's a professional joke writer, so the tweets were pretty great. And they ended up turning into jokes that she'd try out on stage, and, and then those jokes turned into an entire special. It's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. You can watch it now on the streaming service CISO. Here's a bit of Lori. Knock, knock. <laughs> Not my dad, he's dead. <laughs> That's the first joke, guys. Uh, 44 more to go. And then, then we're all going to get the massage of a lifetime. <laughs> I organized a group on for everybody here. Uh, it's it's going to be pretty awesome. Now, um, my dad died in, in March, so I, I feel like of the Kubler-Ross uh, five stages, I've been through three. Uh, denial, anger, Twitter. <laughs> uh, this might be four, the stand-up special. <laughs> and then five is finding distribution. That's, a, that's, a, that's an L.A. audience. You know exactly... <laughs> the stages of death and dying are. <laughs> Lori Kilmartin, welcome to Bullseye. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. So, congratulations on finding distribution. Thank you. <laughs> the final stage of death. First and foremost. <laughs> I'm, on history, I'm on CISO. <laughs> um, I guess uh, maybe just tell me what kind of guy your dad was. Wow. He was... He he was a great guy. I mean, he he's the guy that would pull over and help anybody if they were stranded. He he loved dogs. I you you can't go wrong with someone who loves dogs. He walked <laughs> a dog uh, for fifty years, an hour a day. Um, he was he was a very supportive dad. Um, it's weird because there's like the dad I know and then there's the letter to the editor's dad who was very conservative. And, you know, if you just read that, you'd be like, you know, it it would be the kind of guy I would be angry at on Twitter, you know, if I read that. But then I I know my dad, he he loved me and he was he was a great family man and uh, very Catholic and and believed very much in going to mass and 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 all that stuff, and very, very loving. What did your parents think about you and your sister, who seemed to have a lot of um, a lot of investment in being funny? I, I think they, they they laughed mostly, you know. And most of the time, the butt of the joke is my mom, <laughs> because she, uh, she's just she just can't stop crossing boundaries and you just can't stop pointing it out. You know, she's like the Donald Trump of the family where it's so ridiculous. You you just can't let it slide. Um, and my dad was sometimes a butt of the joke just for being, you know, he was from Kansas and he didn't get a lot of references and he pronounced things oddly. Elizabethan. I, <laughs> I'll never get that out of my head. Um, uh, so we, we'd make fun of him a little bit, but it was mostly my sister and I uh, aiming at my mother. You're pretty brutal to your mom in this television. She deserves special. every single joke, <laughs> <laughs> and the stuff I'm working on now is even meaner and <laughs> even more satisfying to me. <laughs> I mean, you're like totally relentless, and you were, you know, when you were sending tweets about your father's death. Yeah. 30% of them 
worth the expense of your mother. Well, it's, you know, I think this is probably how a lot of people handle death. But, you know, while we're trying to have these intimate moments with our dad, my mom's obsession with cleaning and wiping the table off and asking us to move something was infuriating. And I know that's just how she was processing it or not processing it. But, yeah, we could, you know, you can't let that go. Uh, Did you and your dad live in the same general place when you found out he was sick? Uh, both in California, yeah. Uh, me in Southern California, and he was in the Bay Area. And so I started flying up a lot, you know, uh, a lot on the weekends and hanging out. And um, I called him all the time. I recorded all of our conversations. I have tons of audio of my dad. And he, I, he's like – he's my a major artist on my iTunes. My iTunes. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes I'll just play our phone calls just to hear his voice. Like what kind of phone call? Just, you know um, – what has the most stars? <laughs> There's one where – this is actually recording from before he got sick and his voice sounds younger too. It's, it's, it's interesting. The most audio I have of my dad is voices. He's 83 and he's dying and it's a different voice. And then I, I, I have a couple where he's you know in his 60s or 70s and he sounds really young. He's talking about being in Korea or growing up in Topeka and the bootlegger's daughter. Her name was Juanita and all these you know kind of stories – uh, from when he was a kid. And then then the the second half are just me calling up and asking him how much he weighs. <laughs> Why isn't he eating more? And, you know, just me, a lot of me nagging him. My my parents are both in their 70s and they're very, very hearty people. But my dad got uh, kind of sick recently. I didn't even hear about it till afterwards. And it wasn't life-threatening, but I... I don't think I've ever felt so vividly the geographic distance of this choice that I had made yeah. to leave home. Like that I I had decided, I grew up also in the Bay Area, and I had decided to move to Los Angeles yeah. you know, to work and live. And the second my parents became vulnerable, I was like, oh, wow, I, I sure picked that. Yeah. Did you have that feeling? Yeah. But it it would have been worse if I'd been mostly based in New York, you know. This way, you know, this way I I was just one Southwest flight away, you know. I I, I made that trip a lot, and um, but yeah, definitely I wish I'd have been there, been able to help him, just drive him around to doctor appointments and stuff like that, you know. I I tried not to miss too much, but obviously I missed a lot. How did you find out he was sick? Well, he'd been. It's weird, you know. There's this point when they go from in their 70s to their 80s where they become elderly. And I guess my dad just seemed like a regular dad for a long time. And then, I, I you know, you go, wow, <laughs> he, he, he passed that, that barrier, I guess. And now he's, he's elderly. And, and, um, and then I heard, you know, he wasn't doing well, but he's, you know, one of those guys that would never go to the doctor and felt he was fine because he worked out all the time. And, um, uh, and so I, I, I was, just hoping something really horrible wasn't going on. And, and then I was on the road and working in Austin. Um, and uh, then I heard that he had been hospitalized and they found lung cancer. Did somebody call you? or? Yeah, my mom did. Yeah. Yeah. He was walking the dog and he did. I guess there was a blood clot moving up his arm and his arm had swollen, t- you know, terribly. And he he wanted to make sure he walked the dog first. <laughs> so 
my mom and I was on the phone yelling at him, Dad, go to the hospital. He's like, I'm just going to go up the block. I'm back. You know, she's she's got to pee. And um, so we yelled at him and got him. You know, I was yelling at him from Texas and my mom was trying to get him in the car. She was like following him in the car while he was walking the dog. <laughs> um, and they got him into the hospital. And I guess the clot was part of, you know, some it had something to do with the lung cancer. And, you know, if they hadn't got him there, you know, within minutes, you know, he would have been, a, you know, he might have died or something like that. So it's funny that you were on the road when that happened. I think for a lot of comics, there's literally nothing that will stand between them and their obligation to perform right. road dates. Yeah. Like I know comics who've gone on stage with like pneumonia. Or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, they get hit by a car and they're like, okay, I, I got to do my 45 and then I can get <laughs> over to the. The adrenaline covers up so much, yeah. you know, of being on stage. And then it, then it hits you when you get off stage. Yeah, I, I, it was a Saturday that I found out that he was in the hospital and I had two shows that night. So I wasn't leaving. I mean, you know, he, he also wasn't in danger. Once he was hospitalized, he wasn't in danger of, of dying that day. So, you know, as soon as, you know, I had, I had two Saturdays and a Sunday and then I went and visited him. It's Bullseye. My guest is comedian and writer Lori Kilmartin. Her latest special is out on CISO. It's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. What was it like to uh, go on stage and do material about uh, the relative size of your boyfriend's business or whatever? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, uh, when, like, Four hours earlier, especially for that like the late show, where everyone's drunk. <laughs> um, when you had just had this, just totally gobsmacking thing happen. Pretty easy. I was already talking about my dad seeming elderly. I think I had a couple jokes about that. So you know, I was already doing that stuff. Um, yeah, it, I I wasn't. It was weird. I was not worried about him because he was really healthy, and I I you know I only worried about him when he went to hospice. Really, I mean, I was just in. I couldn't believe he would die. Not, you know, not that, not yet. No way. You know, he, he's going to be one of those guys that lives to be a hundred. That's what I was really convinced about. So I just, I, I, I don't know. I wasn't as worried as I should have been. I followed your Twitter for a long time before you started tweeting about your father's sickness, and yeah. you know, your career besides as a stand-up comic is as a joke writer for. The Conan O'Brien show. Mm-hmm. Um, you write monologue jokes, and um, I wonder if it was a choice to write these jokes that were about. I mean, right at the beginning, was it a choice to write these jokes that were about something so personal um, and so intense, or was it just something that happened and then started building? I, I think uh, I think it happened and started building. I I you know. It's weird. I, I was going to, you know, I, I'm from the Bay Area, so I have there's a million places I could go up and p- perform, but I didn't want to leave my dad, you know, his bedside um, when he was on hospice. So I just started tweeting stuff I probably would have tried that night at an open mic or something. I feel like the stakes of your work were relatively high um, because you have a kid and are a single parent and uh, – you know, you had had this long career as a stand-up comic, mm-hmm. 
but that's a job that you know you couldn't necessarily do at least enough to support yourself fully when you have a school age right, kid right, right. that you're responsible for. Yeah, and this was, I mean, this was like your first big professional job doing this other thing, writing jokes. Yeah, I'd had some some smaller writing jobs, but this was like the big one. This was like the one where it was <laughs> what is... paid your bills, right? And... Yeah, and I want I wanted to lead my own obituary. Yeah. <laughs> Conan Ryder dies. <laughs> don't put my name in it. Don't you don't need that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it 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 must have been scary as as lovely as everyone at the Conan show is, and they're unusually lovely for you know. Uh, a such a yeah. such a difficult, challenging show right. business situation yeah. as making a daily show. But, um, you know, there must have just been this feeling like, oh, wow, like this is the most important thing in the world that my father is sick. Yeah. I have the other most important thing in the world. I'm responsible for my child. Yeah. Like sub- almost sub- solely responsible for my child. And I also have this job that's like the the best job that I could have of this yeah. and the first one I've ever had and I don't know what gets you fired from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I initially was trying to write monologue jokes while I was taking care of my dad, you know. I was like, oh, this would just be like working from home, you know? And it quickly, I just couldn't. You know, I, I, just, <laughs> I think I sent in three and then disappeared. Again, without without saying, hey, I'm not going to write any more jokes. I kept intending, like, I kept feeling guilty that I wasn't writing monologue jokes. And then as my dad got closer and closer to death, I just said, you you know, be here 100% and don't feel guilty about it. And everyone seems to be surviving okay. You know, other people are writing Chris Christie jokes. You're good. You know, Kylie's got me covered. The other writers, they're good. Um, but yeah, and, and also I didn't know, you know, the hospice nurse came by and she said he could be like this for six weeks. And I was like, my both my sister has a job too. We're both like, oh my God, we can't, we can't be gone for six weeks, you know. And then my you know, we joked that my dad, you know, may have hurt us and quickly died because <laughs> he didn't believe in vacations either. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was that was terrifying too. The whole thing. Let's hear some more comedy from my guest Lori Kilmartin and her new special, which is called Forty Five Jokes About My Dead Dad." Um, so, uh, in this clip, she's she's talking about what it's like to buy a birthday gift for your dad. When you when his uh, uh, when his death is imminent, <laughs> um, no, let's listen. Um, my dad turned eighty three when he was dying. That was a that was a very strange birthday. We knew it was his last birthday, uh, and it was odd. It was like uh, I didn't know what to get my dad. Do I get him something he wants, or something I want <laughs> to inherit <laughs> in what would seem to be weeks? I got him an iPad. (laughs) That's what every old person wants, is to learn new technology (laughs) when they're dying. (laughs) One of the things that I like about the special, which is sort of half documentary um, and uh, half stand-up showcase Mm -hmm. is that you talk a little bit about how different it was to spend time with your dad um, when he was sick. Yeah. 
um, it was awesome because <laughs> he was a very busy guy and he, he's a guy that had books all over the place and, and he was always trying to learn something and he, you, he always felt like he was a little bit behind. So he was, he constantly had that rushing energy and, you know, he stopped. He just stopped. I mean, he, he physically couldn't. And I think he, you know, after a while he knew he was, this was it. And he just hung out, you know, and he was, he would be awake and then unconscious or asleep and then awake. And when he was awake, we, we just would sit with him. We'd play Linda Ronstadt and just talk about things. And he would, you know, what, at some point he couldn't speak. So all he could do is listen. And that was just kind of like very magical, you know? And, um, he also, uh, he, he, I, I think he had a tendency, like I always remember my dad's eyes darting, you know, like he was just onto the next thing in his head all the time. And when he was in hospice, he, he was so peaceful and his, and he, he just would look at me for like a minute straight, which is, the most intense eye contact I ever had with him. And it was, it, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> we'll finish my conversation with Lori Kilmartin after a break. She'll tell me about how her audience responded to the show. It wasn't all praise either. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. A quick thank you to our sponsor who brings you this message, ZipRecruiter. They understand that posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Click. Right now, Bullseye listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Bullseye. And hey, before we get back to the show, we have a new president here in the United States. And as things transition, the NPR Politics Podcast is inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with them. They'll have two new podcast episodes every week, so you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or whatever. Whatever your morning routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it as you follow the first 100 days and beyond. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app or at npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Lori Kilmartin. She's a stand-up comic. She writes for Conan on TBS. Her new special, 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad, is out now on CISO. What didn't you expect about um, your father being sick and dying? Um... I didn't expect him to die, you know, and I thought he could beat it. And I, I guess uh, I guess we're sort of fed the story about cancer, like you can beat it if you really fight it. And, and my dad's, you know, he was going to fight it. He was a he was a war veteran and he, he was healthy and he was going to fight it. And then um, I didn't think it was going to die. And I didn't. Um, except, you know, I've been lucky in that that was my first big death. Yeah, I hadn't had a had a really impactful death before that, which is, you know, I'm lucky to have lived that life. But to, to that absence is striking, and um, I, I guess I remember going into his office after he was gone, and it, before you know, like his den, his home office, um, just realizing, oh, these pencils. No, he's never going to write with these pencils again. 
that's his toothbrush. That's ne- you know, and it, it, it all the objects that um, he's never going to touch again, and are, they all felt very still. And before they felt like they were moving, you know, like he would be picking up his toothbrush tomorrow. He'd be writing tomorrow, and now they wouldn't be moved again unless we just collected them to throw them away. It's funny that you say that your mom spent this time, you know, cleaning and straightening up. And that was her way of dealing with it or not dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because in a way, you know, you also took this incredible emotional challenge and put it into the game that you knew best, yeah. you know? Yeah. My version of compulsive cleaning, yeah. writing jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. I mean, one of the things about a joke is it's like it has a structure that is like if if you're good at writing them, mm-hmm. which you are, um, you know, there's this, there's this structure that you know and there's – it's like a path towards a satisfying conclusion. Yeah. And especially in front of an audience or even on Twitter where you count those uh, – I, I call them star points. Yeah. They're hearts <laughs> the now. Hearts, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you're like, old school. Yeah. You're like tr- – you're tracking that like – and you're like, yes, this this machine I built worked. Yes. This one killed. Yeah. 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 I mean that is like your – that's your version of what your mom was doing. No, you're totally right. You're right. Um, although – yeah, I mean, my I, we have this one piece of hospice video where my sister is sitting. My sister and I are sitting next to my dad, and she asked my dad, "You know what? What do you want your grandchildren to know?" You know, it, and my dad was sort of, it, it, you know, I, I look at that video. And I'm like, did he just realize then that he's dying? <laughs> it was very, it was very awkward, and yet um, we wanted to hear what he had to say. And then he was a about to talk and it was hard for him to talk and then my mom just bursts into the frame and starts picking up like a candy wrapper that's on the ground in front of my dad on the carpet and she just ruins it she ruined this moment and that's what she did she just ruined a lot of poignant moments and so she does it so much that almost becomes poignant (laughs) like like that's her job in the family is to barge not notice emotions and not 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 feel any kind of tension in the air and just come in and crash into it. There's this incredible moment in the documentary part of your special where your mother is being interviewed and she's describing all these jokes that you wrote. Yeah. And you can you can tell that at least in that moment it really bothers her. <laughs> And I'm sorry that I'm I'm laughing at your uh, kind 83-year-old mother or whatever. No, um, you got her wrong. Okay. You're, you're doing the right thing. Uh, but it, there's this moment where she, she says that and then she says, you know, she says like, you know, Lori keeps making these jokes or whatever. <laughs> the whole time she's making these jokes and... And then she says, but that's my Lori. <laughs> but she doesn't look happy about it. <laughs> she looks like she regrets childbirth. <laughs> I think that's the acceptance part of grief, right? <laughs> <laughs> you accept that your child is, is an, <laughs> moved is an to a-hole. Los Angeles to become a stand-up comedian. <laughs> the single most solipsistic job in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you contributed to that. <laughs> um, 
What did you do with your son this whole time? Your son was now, what, nine or ten, right? He's ten, yeah. So he was seven or eight. He came up for a couple days, and and my sister brought her kids down who are around the same age. And, you know, they were just hanging around Grandpa. And it was the first couple of days of my dad's hospice, so he could still talk and enjoy them. And um, uh, and it was just sort of – it felt like a Christmas or something, you know, where everyone was gathered together. And then they – both left on the same day. Um, I think his my son's father came up and took him back, and um, or I flew him back. I can't actually. I can't remember how I got him back down to L.A., but I did. And my sister's husband took their her kids back. Um, and then it was just the four of us. It was my sister, me, my mom, and dad, like the original four of the family, <laughs> the original members of the band, and it was pretty. Sweet, like the X Men in the yellow suits. <laughs> if I understood uh, comic yeah. books, and paid I think attention, I got that I right. Oh, please don't send me tweets about it. <laughs> please don't tell me tweets about it. <laughs> oh man, sounds like a disaster in the making. <laughs> um, let's hear some more comedy from my guest Lori Kilmartin. Uh, her new special is about uh, the time she spent with her father as he was sick and eventually died. Um, in this clip, she's talking about her dad's funeral, and um, she said uh, she said that her is this a this must be a real thing because it's mm. too specific not to be a real thing that that his funeral got bumped. <laughs> totally real, totally real. Yeah, it was supposed <laughs> to be on Sunday, and then somebody else somebody else had died a couple days after my dad, but they were going to have a bigger funeral, and so we got bumped to Monday. Um, let's take a listen. So we, we had to do the Monday funeral. And I don't know if you know this. Uh, funerals are like stand-up comedy. It's impossible to get people to come to the Monday show. <laughs> I, I had to stand outside the church and bark mourners in. <laughs> I was like, free funeral. Uh, the eulogizer has been on Conan. <laughs> so come on in. <laughs> uh, if you pretend you're Catholic, there's one free drink. <laughs> we uh, we packed the house. When did you start doing jokes on stage about this? I started before he died. Um, again, thinking, you know, that sort of magical thinking of if you talk about it, it won't happen. Um, so I started talking about it beforehand. And then afterwards, immediately, you know, immediately. It, it, it was almost a... The, Part of the um, changeover when you go from having both your parents alive to having one of them gone is getting used to saying they're dead and getting used to using the past tense and saying dad was instead of dad is. And um, so uh, the sooner I could do that in a joke, the better, you know. And it's weird. I think jokes started working better when he was dead because when he was alive, I think now when I look back on it, the audience was like, why are you on stage? <laughs> Go home. <laughs> why are you telling us this joke? <laughs> like, I think the crowd knew the outcome more than I did. And after after he was dead, of course, you know, there's no place for me to go and I should be on stage. And I think that helped a lot of the jokes that I had earlier. That I just kind of switched verb tenses a little bit. They worked a little bit better after he was gone. There's this thing about stand-up comedy, which is that it is a very delicate balance uh, where you have to give the audience enough comfort 
yeah. uh, to know that they're in a secure place. And yeah. that includes emotionally and the, the whole nine yards in order to uh, upset the apple cart and have them enjoy it. Um, and I imagine it must have been hard to figure out what that was. Yeah. It, you know, for a time I thought, oh, you know, the audience doesn't want to hear this stuff, you know, and I like working regular comedy clubs and trying to get away with as much as I can. I don't I don't want to like it necessarily, which is weird because this audience that I did the special for was, you know, was like, hey, it's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. And I wanted to warn everyone because I was tired of walkouts <laughs> <laughs> and people getting angry or upset. But that's my goal is to be able to follow you know, uh, genital material with cancer jokes. Like that's, you know, they, they, they're in a way they're equal human experiences, right? You know, stand-up comedy mostly is about you as the comic and your personal voice and personal experiences and your father dying couldn't be more essential to that. You know, one of the most important things that will happen in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also something that happened to your father even more than it happened to you and happened to your family as much as it happened to you. And I wonder how you thought about um, how you thought about the fact that this was also someone else's experience and your job in you know, you know, your job is public, you know, like being a memoirist, you have to decide what to what to write in the book. I know. <laughs> Because, you know, I, I guess before my dad died, if, if you Googled his name, a co- you know, his resume, his engineering resume would come up and that might be it. And then the other guys with his names <laughs> in Yonkers or whatever. And now it's, you know, his daughter tweeted it. It's, it's she's a comedian. It's it's all about me and how I treated his death like that, you know, and he never wanted to be famous or anything. So it, he, you know, it wouldn't he wouldn't care. Um, he was he wasn't googling his name. He, it was not of interest to him. But but yeah, it it does bother me <laughs> that you know, or the only picture that shows up is him when he's dying. You know, um, but on in the other on the other hand, he's he's gone. You know, and now I'm left with this this all these emotions, and this is how I deal with it. And now it's mine. You know. I um I know some people who are in the public eye, not very many, who never Google themselves and don't pay attention to what other people say, and genuinely just follow their muse their muse to the stars, yeah, and all that stuff. Um, I know I'm not one of those people. <laughs> uh, God bless them. I admire them. Uh, and I know from having read how you felt about w- being on the. Uh, network TV show, Last Comic Standing, that yeah. you're probably not one of those people. <laughs> that I don't like to follow what people say about me? Yeah, well, that you that uh, that you are sensitive to it. Yes, I am. Not, I don't mean to say extraordinarily because yeah. most people are, but... Less so now, but when I, when I was for... I'll never forget this comment where someone just said, I don't like the shape of her face. <laughs> Which, there's like there's really nothing I can do about that. Like I I can't get a face job. I can't do anything about that. That's it 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 it's so strange that people do that and think they think you wouldn't read it. 
that's funny. Yeah. I was watching this show, and literally one of the things that came into my head, because your sister is also featured heavily in the show. Yeah. I thought, wow, these two have some genes. Look at those jawlines. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Well, I know some lady who doesn't like this jawline. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of the things of putting yourself uh, putting something so intimate out into the public is that you know that it will come back. And I, I imagine that, you know, most people aren't monsters. I imagine that the reaction was mostly, you know, wow, I'm I'm sad you're going through this difficult thing. I've had an experience like that and yeah. it's tough and I support you type reaction. But you know that when you do that, you are opening the door to reactions. Yeah. And I... I... I I'm mostly worried. Like, I, I, if someone says, "Oh, you're exploiting your dad for money," like, I'm not. You know, right now I'm I'm twenty six thousand dollars in the hole. You know, I might break even. Maybe I'll make money off of it later. I don't know, but it's definitely I, I, that's not why I did it. And I and I and I paid for it myself, thinking, "Oh, I'll just put it on YouTube and maybe." Get some, you know. I, I was willing to lose that money just to get it out there artistically, you know. There's a joke in the special, or an anecdote in the special that I really like, which is you saying that while your father was on his deathbed, uh, he had collected a list of friends' dogs to say hello to <laughs> <Yes>. in heaven. <laughs> yeah. Well, all of his friends. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no. Go ahead. Well, all of his friends are dog park friends. He knows like a couple engineers, a couple priests, and then everyone else is dog park people. And the dog park people came out. Like we had family members I couldn't stop by, but the dog people were there in full force. And and some people couldn't handle it, but the people that could were were wonderful. And the dog people, you know, that's the. The, everyone thinks their dog is going to heaven, and they assume my dad would too. And he could see all of his Pepsis. He's had several Labradors named Pepsi, and they're all waiting for him. That's what he thought. And so he was more than happy to take their messages to their dogs. You talk in the special about your father writing uh, checks for the collection plate, <laughs> yeah. um, leaving them on the dining room table, uh, and you writing in the memo section – pedophile defense fund. <laughs> and I guess I wonder if when you think of your dad now, you think of him being in heaven. I don't know that I believe that. Well, I definitely don't believe the Catholic version of heaven or the Christian version of heaven. But I I do believe I, I don't know who said this quote, you know, not only like, like the universe is stranger than we can even think. I do believe that that I'll I'll see him again or sense him again, you know. Which of all these jokes that you wrote on Twitter was your favorite? I guess the the one I still tell is where my son was seven and he said, uh, "Had my dad had lung cancer," and my son said, "How did Grandpa get lung cancer?" And I said, well, he quit a long, long time ago, but for many, many years, Grandpa played Minecraft. (laughs) (laughs) It was an amazing 10-minute deterrent, and then my son was willing to die (laughs) of lung cancer. (laughs) 
Laurie Comartin, I'm so grateful to see you again. So grateful for this uh, great, hilarious special. Thank you so much. I appreciate you watching it. I really appreciate that. Laurie Kilmartin's new special is on CISO, the streaming service, which you can get now through uh, Apple TV and Amazon, as well as as a standalone app. It's called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. It's Bullseye. Brian Safi and Aaron Gibson host the comedy podcast Throwing Shade. Every week they kick off the show with a tagline. They take a weekly look at all the issues important to ladies and gays and treat them with much less respect than they deserve. Aaron and Brian are unsparing and incisive, but they're also warm and ridiculous and silly. They're never afraid to veer from a hilarious takedown of some cruel hate monger into a goofy fake phone conversation. They're vulgar, they're brave, and above all, they are really, really funny. Their podcast has been going since 2012. It's actually been part of our podcast network since that year, too. Now, Throwing Shade is a TV show airing late nights on the revamped TV land. I've known Brian and Aaron for so long, I just can't think of two funnier people to talk about the crazy world we live in right now. Here's a clip from the show's first episode. And now on to more things we don't like. Or as we like to call it, the shade list. First up, this new theory that the Titanic really sunk from a coal fire, not an iceberg? Absolutely not. Do you know how much I've invested in the Titanic? Yes. Yeah, I bought the movie. I bought the soundtrack. I bought that old lady's necklace. I am bankrupt right now. No, my iceberg narrative will go on. I don't care how it sunk. It sunk. Please stop wasting our time, guy with a snorkel. Definitely how the Titanic was discovered. Put it on the list. Aaron, Brian, welcome to Bullseye. It is great to have you on the show. It's We're great to be here. to be here, yeah. Congratulations on your television program on uh, TV Land. Thank you very much. So much. It was our New Year's resolution, and it came true. <laughs> That's, <laughs> really? it. That's how easy it is. The <laughs> turnaround is remarkable on that. It really I've is. been trying to hike more, and that's going okay. But um, I'm really proud of you guys. Thank, Thank you, you very we just, much. We turned things around really quickly. December 31st, we thought, why don't we take this on TV? And January 2nd, it all worked out. <laughs> so... If you learn any lessons about Hollywood, it should be that. A wish can come true. Yeah. Did the two of you guys know each other before you started working together on current TV years ago? I Only guess sort of. Very just a little bit like in the halls of UCB. UCB. I think we we sort of Aaron was actually friends with my ex-boyfriend and so Right. That's I was I on a mod how, team with him for like 5 years. Yeah, at a Persistence Brigade and I think that's that's sort of how we became aware of each other. So we knew each other a little bit, but it never certainly like bonded or anything like that. Did you have an opinion of each other? Not real. I I I feel like I don't take offense to this. I barely thought about you because <laughs> I was you were never, I never saw you. It was like, I was on sketch team with Ben, mm-hmm. but you clearly weren't. It was just like. You thought were, about you Aaron were, every night. You were, someone, <laughs> you were just someone's boyfriend. Thought about her a lot. I really wanted to be friends with her. <laughs> no, it's true. I didn't, yeah, I, I, you were my boyfriend's friend. That was sort of, that was sort of the opinion. That but, I thought was funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I wasn't like, what a terrible person. Right. Thanks. And I still believe that. <laughs> When the show ended and the network ended, you guys started a podcast. Um, Why did you think that that was, like, something that would work? Well, I don't know that it's something that we did necessarily think would work. I I know that at that point, Aaron and I... uh, 
we both loved talking about politics, but really our arsenal for talking about it was really just pop culture references and being silly. I can't cite Supreme Court cases. That's not my bag. I can't try on those clothes. But Erin and I knew that we wanted to continue doing what we were doing on Current, which she was talking about issues affecting women. I was talking about issues affecting LGBT people. And we wanted to do it in a format that didn't necessarily have to have clips that could be longer than two to four minutes, that could be uncensored, that really could show our silly side instead of our journalistic side. And and so I think that is what prompted us to do it. And And also, I mean... I think we were lucky in that, like, we stumbled into a sort of hook of I talk about LGBT issues. She talks about women's issues. And because really, we just set out to be two friends talking and then about stuff that we care about, which happens to be politics. And, you know, is Mariah Carey actually funny? Yeah. Does she know that she's funny? (laughs) Is she accidentally funny or actually funny? What is your opinion about actually funny? Not accidentally funny. Really? I think she knows what she's doing. Yeah. I really thought. I think that her recent uh, uh, New Year's Day meltdown scenario is a good argument in favor of that. Her sort of grace and charm yeah. in accepting, uh, like, she really knew how to go, like, eh, it's yep. show business, folks. Uh, yeah. The confidence to not lo- just fully lose it. I know. <laughs> and she was funny. And like you said, she was charming. And yes, I think other pros would have just... They would have probably sung the song and gotten through it. And she was like, meh, no. And also, what a great way to finish 2016 <laughs> with just that giving up of like, okay, well, here it is. That was pretty great. <laughs> what did you find about each other when you started sitting down to talk for an hour every week that you, maybe that you didn't expect? I think that we, that we have twin syndrome. I think I didn't expect that we finish each other's sentences that... Um, sentences. But <laughs> proven. <laughs> proven that chemistry is undeniable. QED. No, and I I think also that um, I don't think I knew how silly we each were and that even that we would just... The way that go off we would the deep end together. The way that we would take the sting out of something would be to go on these wild tangents and to go into crazy town like that. I, I don't think that I knew how silly you were. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Brian Safi and Aaron Gibson. They're the co-hosts of the podcast and now television show, Throwing Shade. One of the first uh, Google results that I got when I Googled throwing shade this morning as I was thinking, oh, I wonder if there's some in-depth interviews with Aaron and Brian I can read, uh, was a hot take about the show Yep. Um, from the African-American news and politics and hot take site The Root, I think, mm-hmm. uh, that was about the fact that it was called throwing shade. Yes. Um I guess maybe before we talk about that, maybe you could tell us, for for those in the audience who don't know what throwing shade is, uh, what that means, uh, and where it comes from, what that means and where it comes from. Yeah, I saw it years ago in a movie called Paris is Burning, which is a documentary about drag culture in Harlem. In, in the 80s. In the 80s. And uh, I think the specific uh, performer who, who mentions throwing shade, her name is Dorian Corey. She's since passed away. And... Basically, throwing shade is sort of an artful way to talk trash about someone to where they don't even realize what you've said about them until a couple minutes later. 
And the um, metaphor is that, the, that you're blocking their shine, essentially, that you're getting in yeah, the way of their spotlight or their, their, the sun on their whatever. Exactly. So this was a movie made by Jenny Livingston in, I don't remember, it was like the, the early, mid-'80s. Um, and, uh, and then I remember um, on David Letterman, I used to – sort of my comedy influence was always Sandra Bernhardt. And she, I remember – Went on David Letterman and said, don't throw shade at me, Miss Letterman. And it was like a big <laughs> deal. It was so funny. And um, and I don't know. I, I think we've always felt that the sentiment of that, especially from Paris's Burning, falls in line with the social sort of issues that we discuss and have built a community on and want to further. I think it was all it was always in sort of our contract to do that to people who do it to us. So that was that's where the name is. So, the, I mean, the accusation was essentially that you were appropriating this from mm-hmm. African-American culture. Um, how do you feel about that? And I think even more than that, um, how has doing this show for a long period of time uh, kind of expanded your view about, like, what the audience is, how you relate to them, and how you relate to the things that you're talking about. I think definitely the issue of um, being inclusive is something that's always on our mind and how we can be better at it. And um, so kind of pulling it from Paris is Burning is one thing, but then diving deeper into it and seeing and, you know, knowing where it comes from and, and, uh, and its background and and the people who used it and the fact that we're calling our show this is something we we definitely acknowledge. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. I I don't it is it, it always felt like an homage to that movie and um obviously, you know, I think a lot of peop- more people know about it now because of shows like RuPaul's Drag Race and that Wolf kind of Blitzer. thing. And Wolf Blitzer <laughs> says it, yes. And um you know it it definitely is one of those terms that has seeped into the popular culture for sure but of course we are naturally inclusive people we hear the argument no doubt about it um and uh i don't know it it certainly isn't something that we've ever felt that we were taking i do hope that um i think you know i've read the i've read the root article um i i hope that the author will watch our show and not just write a story on us based on a 30-second promo. Yeah, I think that I, I had that same reaction having seen your pilot presentation a few months ago, thinking, huh, I wonder if this person will feel the same way about this when they see what these two people are actually doing. Mm-hmm. Because we've addressed it on the podcast many times over the years. Mm-hmm. And I think this is coming back up because people are... Seeing it for the first time. Seeing it for the first time on yeah. TV. And, um, you know, we we... We want to have the discussion and we want to give it credit and homage and we we don't want to be guilty of the very thing that I think we that we're trying stand to against. fight yeah. against. Yeah. Did you already have a vision for what this was as a television show uh, that was specific when you like started, went out to pitch it and so on? I think we did. I, I think we always knew. Our background is also in, you know, improv and sketch. And then we do. I always knew that I wanted it to be a studio show that threw to sketches. I think that was always, I don't think that's what we originally 
did, but I think that is what we ended up with, and I think that's always what we actually wanted because definitely we want to rely on the issues and the stories that we talk about, but also, like you've mentioned, on the podcast, we do play these zany characters all the time, and we wanted to make that visual on the show and satisfy that um, because we, we know that we can do it. And so I think that this is really the best of both worlds for that, for this and TV show. I think, too, making a TV show that is still a TV show and not a podcast that's a TV show. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, like figuring out what the how to make our voice and what we talk about and how we like to joke about these things fit into what people already think of when they think of a TV show. So it looks like when you see us, it looks like two people sitting at a daily show like desk talking to each other and the audience throwing to sketches as, if, you know, a la Amy Schumer. Right. And There's a lot of familiar aspects to it, yeah. That it wasn't, yeah, exactly. Like, you weren't watching Throwing Shade, the podcast, on TV. You were watching Throwing Shade, the TV show. Because we actually, we sold a pilot to Logo before this one, and we tried to do that. And it just, I don't know, it, it was... Just felt too unfamiliar or something. Mm-hmm. It just, and not in necessarily a great way. It just felt sort of like, well, no, this belongs on a podcast kind of thing. We'll continue my conversation with Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi after a short break. They'll tell me about the TV host Throwing Shades drawn the most inspiration from. It's not John Stewart. It's not Samantha B. Yeah, you guessed it. It's Wendy Williams. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron. Blue Apron partners with sustainable farms, fisheries, and ranchers to bring you all the ingredients you need to create incredible home-cooked meals. Ingredients compared with an easy-to-follow recipe card delivered to your door weekly in a refrigerated box. Rediscover how fun cooking can be while enjoying specialty ingredients and exploring new flavors and cuisines. Get your first three Blue Apron meals free plus free shipping by visiting blueapron.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. We'll get back to my interview with Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi from Throwing Shade. But first, let me tell you about our sister show, Pop Rocket. If you're like me, you know, one of those people with a visceral, real, palpable love of the things that make pop culture great, then Pop Rocket is the show for you. It's a weekly roundtable discussion featuring some of the funniest and sharpest minds out there. This week, we've got a very special guest host, too, Jordan Morris, my best pal, co-host of Jordan, Jesse Go, my comedy podcast. Hey, Jordan, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Uh, hey, Jesse, I am filling in for Guy Branham this week on Pop Rocket, and uh, we got a lot of great stuff. Our main topic is the presidential inauguration, the entertainment at the inauguration, uh, and a larger discussion of pop culture bubbles. Like the kind of things uh, that some people know about, other people don't know about. Exactly. Uh, that sort of thing. Are there red state shows? Are there blue state shows? What's something we can all agree on? Uh, Did you I, know that more people watch Swamp People than watched Mad Men? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it was a fascinating discussion. Uh, as always, the panelists were amazing, and people should check it out. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download fine podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi, the two co-host TV Land's Throwing Shade. What have you discovered uh, doing the television show uh, that you didn't expect? Like, what were the opportunities that you found that you, uh, that you maybe even weren't looking for? I think there's a big sketch element with this show, and um, it was interesting and awesome to make points through 
a character and through a weird sort of story arc. It was it was interesting to go that way about it to to take the outrage from a character's point of view instead of your own. Can and you give me an example? Brian plays a character who has a girlfriend who has an abortion. Yeah. Who's, you know, happy about it and Oh like, yeah, that I'm thrilled yeah. that she had the abortion. And I and it always made me think like why don't more guys talk about um and come forward about how they're pro-choice because it affects, you know, can affect a man's life too. And 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 maybe wouldn't it be great if there were just a bunch of men who were relieved that this happened <laughs> and shouldn't they speak up? And But uh, you in a golf outfit is really I did get a to play. Sight to that's see. fine. Whenever we get to play like conservative kind of people, that's so I've been in a golf outfit. You've been I, in two golf outfits. I got to be uh the uh, 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 uh an elder of the Mormon church. That was so fun. It was it's been great playing those kinds of people. Brian, I have to say having listened to the show for years, you have interesting ideas about the lives both <laughs> external and ten- internal of heterosexual men. Well, we're kind of picking, we're kind of working with the worst of them. And by the way, anytime I play a straight guy on this show, oh, there's also another sketch that I loved called. It's basically a an infomercial for a product that if two men want to hold hands outside, they stick their hands into Hulk hands that are holding a cooler, <laughs> so, so it can be secretive. So they can hold hands in public, but it looks like they're wearing they're wearing an ice cooler. <laughs> like they're so frat guys are like, you guys are awesome. But someone said the other day that whenever I play. A straight guy, I play him totally bewildered and just wide eyed, everything hope, hopelessly like a baby optimistic. looking at a spoon. Yeah, which I thought was kind of nice. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> You're not insulting when you play no. straight guys. Yeah. But yes, I do have, uh, I guess, <sighs> very, talk about broad brush strokes. Whenever I've talked yeah. on the podcast or imitated someone, just, it it's been no one I even know I in my real life that's so about. absurd it is. Yeah. If only there were some straight guys around at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. <laughs> only if I could draw from real life. It's true. God. There is something really sweet, uh, I have to say, as a straight guy, about you seeing the um, uh, the unearned cluelessness of the straight white male. The fact that we yeah. are we have the privilege to walk through the world without seeing many of its warts because they don't confront us directly. Right. Um, uh, as a kind of sweet optimism rather than a, a sort of e- evil fundamental flaw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is definitely. I've, I, I don't know. I think there's only maybe true evil in about a dozen people in this world. <laughs> the rest are just Misguided. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, I want to I ask you about uh, one of the jobs that you've had lately. Um, you have occasionally been a host on, is it Access Hollywood? It's one of the... Access Hollywood Live, the morning show. Access Hollywood Live. It is, it's a television skill that I've always really very sincerely admired, the ability to host that kind of show. Sure. It seems insanely difficult to me. You know, I have always loved daytime television um the shows that i like i mentioned oprah earlier i mean that's i would come home watch oprah watch i would used to record regis and kathy lee um that's always <laughs> been my jam wendy williams i record and watch every day i sit, love her sit at home after school truly watching regis and kathy and enjoy, yeah. enjoying a strawberry yes. milkshake yeah i still record the today show wendy williams uh kelly i, I love all those shows and so 
the chat format, which is what the morning show is. The evening show is very different. That's like the Hollywood entertainment stuff. But the morning show is just a chat show. I love doing that. I think it's so fun. What do you love about it? I love the blanket of it all. I love the warmness. I love um, feeling like those are your first friends in the morning, that um, those are the people who you're sharing a worldview with first thing. And um, I don't know. I've always responded to that. And I will say I have always... And it's because I come from a family of very strong women. I've always gravitated more to that kind of show than a nighttime show because where is where, – growing up, where was the late show hosted by a woman? I just – those were the figures I grew up with and admired. And in, on daytime, they've always existed and have been very successful. And that's never been the case in primetime. So I think it's all part of that. Who on daytime television do you see as your first friend in the morning? Now? Yeah. Probably, I mean, honestly, probably Wendy Williams. Yeah. I love someone who is, gets it wrong a lot (laughs) and who is totally unapologetic about it. I mean, not always though. Sometimes she does apologize, but I mean, she's very much, she can't put anything else on than what she is, than the person she is. And I, I don't know. I think you have to admire that. You have to admire someone who. In their in their like roundup in the morning, shows you a picture of their toe ring, yeah, and spends time on it. It's pretty fearless. That, that's confidence. Yeah. A wearing a toe ring, B showing it to the world. Did Wendy yeah. Williams really do that? Oh yeah. Oh, she's 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 unafraid. She is totally unafraid, and it's so genuine. And I think that I think that's the quality that is also so appealing in daytime. Is it's so genuine? You're not having you don't have joke writers. You know what I mean? That just that isn't the thing. It's just you just have to be it's a talented. It's all personality exactly. driven. Yeah. Exactly. On uh, Throwing Shade, the podcast, over the last whatever it's been, five or seven years, um, you have never – You. it seems as though f- for me as a listener, you never hold anything back. Um, it may be that you're holding things back, but like when you go in on something or someone, you just go for it. Um, and I wonder if – that is something that has led to regrets over the years. Yes. I I think we've definitely – I think we've – I mean, I will speak for myself. I think I've gotten petty with people that – and I don't even necessarily think – like, I remember there were some Chris Christie jokes that I said that I was like, oh, I could have – I could have figured out a different way to go at him than the way that I did. Um, I have to say, we write a really interesting, I'm going to say the word interesting, we write a line on the podcast where we will make fun of someone's looks if they don't make any sense. Like, we called Kim Davis a walking denim skirt, which doesn't really say anything about The way she actually looks. So that's the kind of special rules that we've kind of developed over the years. Yeah, I would say that the things I regret are if I ever went in on someone who deserved it, a bully who deserved it, but went in at all on their looks. I, We don't really do that any longer um, unless it's in a really almost fantasy way or mm-hmm. like totally absurd. But um, I would say that, yeah, that because that's just like it's it's just, also so it's cheap. Just, it's too cheap. Yeah. yeah. I think because we are coming from a position of having people regulate our lives and what we do personally i think we're a little more sensitive about it and i think we always every anytime we get feedback from people who listen to the show that's constructive criticism we listen to it and we try to be better and more inclusive and be better social advocates for everybody 
podcasts, even more than television, have audiences that have a really deep personal relationship with them. Um, and I've I've been to, in fact, I even performed on one of your shows once, and uh, you know, sat in the audience while you guys were on stage and saw the faces of the people in the audience. And how much we sweat. <laughs> and how much you sweat. The two of you look fantastic as ever. Um, but you, uh, that look that was in those, like, 23-year-old art school kids' eyes, like, n- nerds in art school is the category that I would loosely describe your audience. That's fair. Um, and... It was like, on the one hand, like the most magical, wonderful thing ever. But it's also like a lot of load to carry if you are the podcast friend of uh, the gay art school kid in Billings. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if the, if you're Brian Safi as a kid mm-hmm. somewhere and you're just looking for someone that you can relate to on television and Wendy Williams isn't cutting it. Sure. That's a lot to that's a lot of load to carry. I'll say there have been a couple of situations that were surprised, especially on the, during the live shows where people have come up to Brian after the show and said, you you helped me come out of the closet and are weeping. And it's and I say, I'll take it in cash. <laughs> <laughs> and then he charges them for the service. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think more so for you than me, because I don't know about that. I, I, I do think that it is, it has definitely been a lesson in, I do now believe that you can achieve what you want to achieve and be bold and funny and brash and ridiculous and still think before you speak. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. And I don't think that thinking before you speak and political correctness is a comedy killer. I don't think that at all. And I maybe used to think that because there are situations now I do just not overthink it, but I will also consider like, but will this hurt somebody and will someone listen to this and take it the wrong way? And, um, and there's still a way to be funny and not offend somebody. That's, you can do that. And simultaneously help children come out of the closet. Yes. Every, every single second. Yeah. Every second, Brian Safi helps a Thank you. young gay man come out of the closet. Are, are you taking donations at all, Brian? I, I'm always taking donations. Right. Definitely. Yeah. How My, much does it cost to get one kid out of the closet? It costs approximately $75,000. Okay. So like yeah. adopting a child. So about yeah. 15,000 cups of coffee. It's just about 15,000 cups of coffee. Um I can send you. It's cash only, uh-huh. upfront, uh-huh. no guarantees, uh-huh. um, and uh, yeah, I do. You know, I do it when I can, right? The best I can, right? Okay, it's a part-time job. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, hire me. Hire me. <laughs> well, Aaron and Brian, I'm so grateful to you for taking this time to Thank be you on. So grateful much. to you. That was uh, you're just the best, and you gave us a box full of caramels, which with what's marshmallows wrong with that? inside. Yeah, I did, and which I'm... we wanted to eat during the show. Yeah, <laughs> but you wouldn't let us. Yep, and I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for your show and your talent. I just admire the hell out of what you do. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jesse. Brian Safi and Aaron Gibson. Their new show, Throwing Shade, just premiered on TV Land last week. You can catch it live Tuesday nights at ten thirty, nine thirty Central. Their podcast of the same name inspired the show. It's just as funny as it's ever been, and I'm hoping that it will run forever. Check it out at MaximumFun.org. 
Every week we like to close out Bullseye with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. So I was walking in San Francisco the other day in the Mission District where I grew up. used to be kind of a rough neighborhood. Now, thanks to tech money, it's really the opposite. As I was strolling down Valencia Street, I couldn't help but think about a Simpsons episode I watched the other day. It's about 20 years old now. It's called You Only Move Twice. Here's the plot. Homer gets offered a new job in a new city, and he is excited about it. But the family like Springfield. They don't want to go. So Homer puts a video into the VCR about the new town. It's called Cypress Creek. Cypress Creek, a tale of one city. Uh, let's watch up, Mouse. Homer, you're trying to talk us into moving to this place. Oh, yeah, that's right. Let's watch this. Look at this place. Somebody ought to build a town that works. Somebody did. We see an abandoned five and dime transform into a coffee shop. Then a bar becomes an espresso shop. Then a dumpster becomes a coffee cart. Then a bum becomes a mailbox. Cypress Creek, a planned community designed for the workers of the Globex Corporation. Cypress Creek, where dreams come true. Your dreams may vary from those of Globex Corporation, its subsidiaries, and shareholders. It's a promising dream. The Simpsons bite. They pick up stakes, they move to Cypress Creek. It's a technological super future, ruled by a benevolent corporate master, CEO Hank Scorpio, played by one of the greatest comedy geniuses of them all, Albert Brooks. I am here to welcome you on behalf of the president of the Globex Corporation. Me! Try the papayas. They're juicy and full of papain. Makes you strong like Popeye. Popeye, Popeye-in, Popeye, Popeye-in. See? Same thing. Same Ah, forget it. How are you? I'm Hank Scorpio. Wow, my boss. Don't call me that word. I don't like things that elevate me above the other people. I'm just like you. Oh, sure, I come later in the day, I get paid a lot more, and I take longer vacations, but I don't like the word boss. Hey, look at my feet. Okay. You like those moccasins? Look in your closet. There's a pair for you. Don't like them? Then neither do I. Get the hell out of here! Ever see a guy say goodbye to a shoe? Yeah, it's once. The story was originally the idea of Greg Daniels. He's a Simpsons producer who created The Office and co-created King of the Hill, among other accomplishments. The writing credit on the episode goes to John Schwartzwelder. He's one of The Simpsons' most beloved writers. And the whole thing's about as close as it gets to perfect. And as The Simpsons settle into Cypress Creek, the town seems perfect, too. Homer's work life is amazing. They even encourage his laziness. Sir, I need to know where I can get some business hammocks. Hammocks? My goodness, what an idea. Why didn't I think of that? Hammocks! Homer, there's four places. There's the hammock hut. That's on third. Uh-huh. There's hammocks or us. Got that's it. on third, too. You got put your butt there? Mm-hmm. That's on third? Yeah. Swing low, sweet chariot? Right. Okay. Matter of fact, they're all in the same complex. It's the hammock complex down on third. Oh, the hammock district. That's right. But things aren't quite so perfect as they seem. For one thing, Marge, with nothing to worry over and no chores to do, thanks to a robotic vacuum, starts drinking, like heavily. And it turns out that Lisa is allergic to everything in town, like seriously, everything in town. And Bart, who can't read cursive, ends up in special ed. So, never learned cursive? Well, I know hell and damn and bit. Uh, cursive handwriting script. Do you know the multiplication tables? Long division? I know of them. Hmm. You know, Bart, I think you'd profit from a more remedial environment. I'm sure you'll feel right at home in the Leg Up program. 
And as for benevolent CEO Hank Scorpio, he is a Bond villain. Or actually, for copyright reasons, he's a Bond villain. Ready for the link up, Mr. Scorpio. Uh, Homer, one second. I got to take care of this. Very important. Be right back. Fine. Good afternoon, gentlemen. This is Scorpio. I have the doomsday device. You have 72 hours to deliver the gold, or you face the consequences. And to prove I'm not bluffing, watch this. Oh, my God, the 59th Street Bridge. Maybe it just collapsed on its own. We can't take that chance. You always say that. I want to take a chance. Collapsed on its own, you sh... You have 72 hours. See you. Back to the hammocks, my friend. Yes. You know there's a little place called Mary Ann's Hammocks. The nice thing about that place is Mary Ann gets in the hammock with you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh. You know who invented the hammock, Homer? No. That's something for you to do. Find that out. It's crazy to think that all this was written 20 years ago, before Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg turned the world upside down. The worst we had to worry about back then was Craig from Craigslist. He's a nice guy. I met him one time. The lesson here isn't so much that the tech economy is immoral. It's that it's amoral. It's a machine. It has no morality. It chases likes and A-B testing, revenue per click. It pursues what we tell it to, and that's usually not the public good. And, of course, all this gets sold to us as an unalloyed positive. In other words, it changes closed down five and dimes into coffee shops. But sometimes it turns bums into mailboxes. Look, I'll be the first to tell you, there's great things about tech money. I had some truly fantastic biscuits and gravy one time in the Reddit cafeteria. But Schwartzwelder and the rest of the Simpsons folks just want us to ask a question. Is this gift what it seems to be? If we can't all be winners, then who here are the losers? In the end, Homer takes his family home, to Springfield. And in a way, the episode is fundamentally conservative. It's about how much home and family mean. It's a pay-on to sitcom stasis. But it's also kind of revolutionary. It asks us to question power, to decide what matters and why. Because when you trust blindly, you might end up trusting a Bond villain. Or, actually, sorry, a Bond villain. Homer, I'm disappointed, but I think you need to do what's best for your family. Well, thanks for everything, Hank. T-minus 14 seconds. You need anything, you call me. All right, what's the number? I've never had to call my own company. Someone will tell you upstairs. But Homer, on your way out, if you want to kill somebody, it would help me a lot. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson, he had help this week from Christian Duenas and special guest Cheryl Morris. Thank you, Cheryl. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart, our senior producer at Maximum Fun, Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. He actually has a CD that is uh, Pay What You Want on Bandcamp of Music from Bullseye. You can go ahead and find that on the World Wide Web. Our theme music recorded by the Go Team provided to us by Light in the Attic Records and the band. Our thanks, of course, to them. All of our past shows are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org, click on 
uh, shows and put on Bullseye, or just open up Bullseye in your favorite podcast app. All of them, free. And just find somebody that you're interested in, listen to the interview, and send it to all your friends. Please, we beg of you. Okay. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 